0: Welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles 2017, and a special welcome to all of you who are attending the Feast of Tabernacles for the very first time. This is a very special occasion, and I'm sure you will look back someday on this time when you spent your very first feast. And those of you who have been around for a long time, or just a few years, you always will look back on that first feast. And I hope that all of you have very fond memories as I do. I can remember that very first feast for me, which was in 1964 at Squaw Valley in California. I spent the time in a tent, sleeping in a tent on the shore of beautiful Lake Tahoe, a gorgeous sight, a beautiful time, that full moon shining over the lake as the feast began, and what a time it was. But you know, there were certain things that I noticed at that first feast. The organization, I had not seen organization like that when it came to taking care of crowds, and working with people ever before. Uh, Everybody seemed to be in order and doing things as they were told to do. There was a long line of cars that had to come into Squaw Valley up along the uh, highway, along the Truckee River, and then turning west as we went into Squaw Valley. And everybody paid attention to the directions that they were given. There were individuals showing everyone where to park, and everybody parked according to the instructions they were given. I noticed that they had a family night as well, and they had all the little kids that were supposed to come down on the floor. Here are 6,000 people, and we had all these little kids coming down on the uh, ground floor there to play certain games for family night. And I thought, this is never going to work. You can't have hundreds of little kids out there under control. But they did a wonderful job. And they had something for everyone. It was a family atmosphere, no doubt about it. And everyone was included, even the little kids, the older people on family night. They had a dance uh, that was uh, that took place for some of us who were older. But everybody was included. It was a family occasion. And everyone was practicing the give way of life, at least everybody that I ran into. I didn't run into everybody, of course, but the ones that I did had that outgoing concern. They wanted to make you feel welcome. And I hope that we can do the same here for those who are new and those who may be traveling from some other area and may not be known by a lot of people in the crowd. Another thing I noticed was how new so many people were to the feast. It was my first feast, but there were a lot of people that it was only their second or third feast. And while there were individuals like Dr. Merritt who had been around much longer, or Dr. Hay, uh, I, I remember that the oldest person I met in terms of being in the church was eight years. Now I know that there were those who were longer, but in the circle that I ran with or came in contact with, it was a big question always, well, which feast is this for you? And eight years sticks in my mind as being the longest that someone was in the feast. And that told me, or tells me looking back on that, that the feast was relatively new in North America at that time. We know the Jews keep the Feast in a certain sort of way, or at least some of them do. But to keep the Feast of Tabernacles was pretty revolutionary back in 1964 and even earlier. Uh, The sermons were special, and the special music. I remember one lady that sang the same song several times, maybe three, maybe four times. And I thought she was singing to Freddy, my God, but she was actually saying, Ready, my God. Uh, Thy Will to Do, or something along that line. But uh, as it came to my ears, I knew it couldn't be Freddie, but that's what it sounded like to me. But she was a a beautiful singer, but she didn't have a lot of songs to sing. She had two or three, but she sang that song on more than one occasion. There was a focus on the Bible and the work of God. There were several of us that stayed in a tent, as I mentioned, on the shores of Lake Tahoe. And we'd get in the tent and with a flashlight or lantern, we play various Bible games, and we talk about the Bible. Uh, we'd have one person start reading someplace from the Scriptures, and the rest of us had to look and search and see how fast we could find where that person was reading. And it's amazing, it, with a group of half-dozen or so people, how fast people can find a Scripture, no matter how remote it may seem. There was one fellow that had a stump for a while because he was reading from the introduction of the King James Version. And somehow, it just didn't. It was not familiar to most of us, but the focus was on the Bible. The focus was on the work of God. The focus was on sharing with others, giving to others and a family atmosphere, and everything was done in an orderly fashion. Well, I hope you can see that some of these characteristics are a part of the feast, and I hope that they will be a part of the feast wherever you are attending it. And in the short time that I have for this service— I'm going to be asking a very simple question, a question that Mr. Armstrong often asks, and that is, why are we here? And that seemed like such a a simple, uh, ordinary question. I never really realized the profundity of it or how profound it was, because it is a very profound question. Why are we here? The average person goes to church services someplace, I'm speaking in the world, and they really don't know why they're there. They probably haven't thought it through, other than it's, what the family has done, or I want to be a good person, or I hope that when my life comes to an end, I won't go to that other place, but I'll go to some other place that I'm not really excited about, but it certainly beats the the uh, alternative. But people don't really know why they do what they do. They keep Christmas, they keep Easter, they do a lot of things, but they never really realize what they're doing or why they're doing it. So we're going to answer that question as to why we are here. And I'm going to refer to four passages of Scripture, not four actual verses, but four passages of Scripture. The first one is found in John the 7th chapter in the New Testament. And these will be very familiar Scriptures to most of you, and you may have them read more than once during the Feast of Tabernacles. But here we find that after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee... For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. That was verse 1. John 7, verse 1. Now, that's a pretty good reason to stay out of Galilee or any place else. When somebody wants to kill you, you stay out of that way. And so he stayed away from there for a while. And it says in verse 2, Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. John wrote toward the end of the first century. And he was writing to a very broad audience, and he made it very clear that it was the feast that the Jews kept. Now, that doesn't mean that it is only for the Jews, as we have so many other scriptures that we could uh, turn to, and we'll see a, a little bit of that. But we know that it was the Feast of Tabernacles, the one that the Jews keep each year. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Now that's rather remarkable. Because here his younger brothers, as they would have been, saw him as one who just wanted attention. They didn't see him as the Savior of the world, God in the flesh. They didn't understand that. Even though they must have known that that he was so different from everybody else. He was perfect in his dealings and the way that he he did things, but they didn't believe in him, and they thought he just wanted to be known that he was just full of vanity or something, and so they, they didn't believe him. But Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And then he says, you go up to this feast. Here was a command from Jesus a formal command or a casual command, either way. He said, you go up to this feast. And we know that he went up from year to year, as his custom was, to the feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, and no doubt to the Feast of Tabernacles as well. He said, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up yet uh, to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But, verse 10 When his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So here is Jesus keeping the Feast of Tabernacles even under the threat of death. Even with all the opposition he had, even from his own family, his brothers. Nevertheless, he told them, you go up, and then quietly, privately, away from the family, he went up himself. He kept the Feast of Tabernacles. So we see that Uh, He thought that the Feast of Tabernacles, obviously, was very important to be kept. Now, let's go over to Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter. Deuteronomy 14, and this is a passage that we often read. And you've probably had this passage read to you even before the Feast. Because it talks about preparing for the Feast of Tabernacles. What is it that we have to do? It doesn't actually mention the feast, but when uh, God instructed Israel, he said to them that there were certain things that uh, they were to do at certain times of the year, and there were places where God would place his name. And he placed his name during the various festivals. And so they were to go to the place that God had placed his name. And so he says in verse 22, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. Now, a lot of heresies have come down over the years. I remember one particular one where somebody said that, well, the Jews didn't keep the feast every year. They just kept it maybe one in three years. And yet it's telling us here that they were to save the tithe every single year, year by year. And if we're saving the tithe year by year, obviously that would mean that we would be celebrating the feast from year to year. And A tithe is a tenth. It's a portion of our income, a tenth of our income. And it is not the tenth that we send in to do the work. It is a tenth that we are to set aside for ourselves and our families and for others to help others so that we can have a wonderful feast. And so it says, You shall eat before the Lord your God, verse 23, in the place where He chooses to make His name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the eternal your God always. This is the purpose for keeping the feast, to learn to fear, to grow in awe and respect of God. And when we keep the feast, we learn a lot of lessons. I, I can remember... In the early years when I began keeping the feast, I read these scriptures and I heard that we're to save up a tithe and we are to spend it for whatever our soul desires as we shall read here. And so there were certain things I wanted to do. For example, one year we were at a a, a location on the the shore there of uh, Southern California in Long Beach and I decided I was going to go sailing. And nothing was going to get in my way of going sailing, because I always wanted to go sailing. And so, on a particular day, I rented a boat, I got my crew together, we went out in the boat, and I learned what it meant to take the wind out of your sails. Because I was so set on going out, I really didn't enjoy it, because I had, in in a sense, I was putting that above everything else. And the crew that I had chosen... Uh, didn't know too much about sailing, although a couple of them claimed they did. Uh, thankfully, there was one amongst us, one uh, young lady, one of the college students, that actually had sailed and knew a little bit about it. But another fellow was from Kansas, and I think the only thing he ever sailed in was a prairie schooner. Uh, he didn't know a thing about it. But we got out there, and we were supposed to stay within uh, the harbor area, but we got outside, out in open waters, and I was very nervous. I wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen. And as we came back in, the sail split from top to bottom. Uh, it was not the, the veil of the temple, but it was like that, splitting from top to bottom. It was old. And there were times when we got between the wind and a larger yacht, and we lost uh, the wind. The wind was taken out of our sails, and we just drifted into various yachts and other boats there in the harbor, and it wasn't uh, too pleasant. Uh, thankfully, the owner of the boat was uh, kind enough to me, didn't charge me for the sale. He said it was old. It needed to be replaced anyway. But I didn't really have that much fun. But you know, my greatest experience there, uh, several of us got together and took some of the widow's, widow ladies out for a dinner. And I won't go into all the details, but that was really the most pleasant uh, time during that particular feast. God really blessed that. And it taught me a little bit of a lesson that when you give to others, when the focus is on giving and helping others, God brings that back upon us because, as it says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's a truism. That's a true principle. And it certainly worked that way for me that year. But it says here in Deuteronomy 14, uh, you shall eat before the Lord your God, verse 23, in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the eternal your God always. That's what we are going there for. It isn't just to have fun as a vacation. That's not the primary purpose, but it is to learn God's way of life and to practice God's way of life. And in one sense, what we're doing there is God is giving us a little bit more because a tenth of your income for about 10 days out of the year, uh, and maybe it's not a full tenth because by that time you may have spent it on some of the other holy days, but it's a significantly larger portion. And so in a way, we're a little bit rich during that time of year, aren't we? We have more money than we have to spend at other times during the year for most of us. And so when we do that, God is able to see how we spend that money. What our attitude and our approach is. And yes, he wants us to enjoy those good things. A good beefsteak or a leg of lamb or a nice bottle of wine or something along that line. He wants us to enjoy those things. But when we look at the whole way of life, it's a way of outgoing concern. And when I was there that first feast, there were a lot of people that took me under wing, so to speak, and made sure that I enjoyed that first feast because I didn't have a lot of resources at that time. But they shared what they had with me, and it made it very special. And so God is going to find out what you do, not just when you're poor, but when you're a little bit rich. He finds out what you will do, what your priorities are, what, what it is that really drives you, where your heart is. And now he says, if the journey is too long for you, verse 24... So that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Eternal Your God chooses to put His name is too far from you, when the Eternal Your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Eternal Your God chooses. And so, we find here this is what most of us do. Most of us work, uh, and we are paid in wages. Now, some are, are farmers, uh, sheep herders, or cattle, uh, cattlemen. Or women, And you uh, might sell a bull or a cow or uh, several sheep uh, during the year and you exchange that for money. And so we go there. We don't load up on our back grain and, and sheep and vegetables and all that type of thing. We normally would sell those things uh, during the year uh, or we just simply get paid. We, we work on a job. We lay bricks and they give us a, a wage. And so we go off to the feast with that money. And he tells us that we are to exchange it, uh, and go to the place which the eternal your God chooses, verse 26, and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. This is not a convention that you as as dad and mom go to and leave the kids behind. No, this is for our whole household, and it is for the whole household to rejoice. And so we make sure that we do things that take into account the children. And I think that most people do that. That kind of comes natural in a certain sort of way. Uh, You want to make sure your kids have a good time at the feast, and most of you do that. But the sense is that we do that right there at the feast. It's not something you buy so that you can just take home. And I don't want to get into all the do's and don'ts of how to spend the money, but it's, the focus is on there at the feast. And there are always people who have less than we have, and we can include them in it. We can bring them along when we go out to eat as well. Uh, you shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. So the ministry was to be remembered at that time, and uh, we don't need uh, for you to hand us money uh, at that time. But when people send in their tithe or their tithe, that's part of what what covers that as well, and the expenses that we have, and and uh, maybe flying to two or three sites to be able to serve God's people in that way. So uh, this is the, this is the command that we have there. Now let's go over to. Another passage that I'm almost certain somebody's going to read, and I I, I know what the ministers are thinking right now. I hope he doesn't take all my scriptures. Well, you can expound on these scriptures from different points of view, and it all adds up to the, the same basic message, but we're going to go over to Zechariah, the 14th chapter. And this is very important because this shows us that the Feast of Tabernacles is not just for the Jews of the Old Testament but it is for the future. And so we'll look at the beginning of uh, the uh, chapter here. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 14 it says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. We know that that is the time of God's intervention in world affairs. And your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Now these are conditions that we see even now. Uh, nations that are hating the Jews and would like to take over not just Jerusalem, but the the entirety of that little tiny nation of Israel. And it's a very small nation, to say the least. But he's going to gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So this indicates that it is a divided city. Half the city goes into captivity. That's the the part that people are angry at, the Jews, the Jewish sections there. And whether it's, you know, exactly 50%, but it's it's speaking there of a divided city where you have part Jewish and part otherwise. And then it says, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Verse 4, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. So, we find here an event that has yet to take place. We haven't seen that earthquake. We haven't seen Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives, coming back from, uh, the, from heaven above, coming back, landing, as it were, on the, the Mount of Olives. And while he's there, the Mount of Olives splitting in two, and a very large valley going east and west. We haven't seen that happen. This is talking about something that is going to be future. And then he talks about how there's going to be a river of water that goes forth. Uh, Verse 8, And that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. We don't see that right now we know that this is talking about a future event. In fact, verse 9 makes it very clear. It says, And the Eternal shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Eternal is one, and his name one. So, very clearly, this is talking about a time, not when Jesus first came, but in the future, his second coming. And then it describes a battle that's going to take place, and I'll skip over that part of it, and we'll get to verse 16. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So, here we have people that are going to come up to worship Jesus Christ, and they're going to come up to Jerusalem, and they're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this isn't the Jews that it's talking about specifically here, because notice, verse 17, It shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So whichever families of the earth, it's not talking about the Jews only, it's talking about other nations, and they must come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, or God says, I'm not going to give you any rain. And let's see how long this goes, how long we, you can wait this out. But I want you to come up and keep this feast. And so then he says in verse 18, he makes it very specific, he's not talking of the Jews. He says, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt. And the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now that should tell us that God is very serious about this subject. And you might ask, well, why the Feast of Tabernacles? When Christ returns, why the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, when we really understand it, we understand that the Feast of Tabernacles pictures this time after Christ's return, the thousand year reign, Of Jesus Christ on this earth. And so uh, we find that that is the feast that is focused on here. It's not the only feast that's going to be kept or that is going to be commanded to the people at that time, but it's a feast of tabernacles that is pictured by the events that they're just going into. They are just beginning the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And so we find that He's going to force them to keep the feast tabernacle. They say force. He's going to withdraw his blessings until they do come up to keep the feast. Now, sometimes people say, "Well, how can the whole world keep the feast of tabernacles at Jerusalem?" And, you know, God is a very practical God. He's not. Uh, he's not going to do something that can't be done. He's. He's done what, or he's going to do what? Uh, the church learned quite a few years ago. We had one site for the feast, and then. we outgrew that and went to another, and then we outgrew that, and then there was property that was donated to the church down in Big Sandy, Texas, or just outside of Big Sandy, Texas. And so that was the location that the whole church came together. But as we grew, there simply weren't the facilities and the space uh, to be able to handle uh, 20,000 people or 50,000 people. You know, one time... The Church of God had as many as 150,000 people approximately keeping the feast, plus or minus a few thousand. But that was the basic uh, attendance for, for Sabbath services and everything. And so we had somewhere around 150,000 people. We could not fit into one location. It would have been very impractical. And so God inspired Mr. Armstrong, no doubt uh, encouraged or uh, counseled uh, with Dr. Meredith, Dr. Hay, and various other ones that were there. But Dr. Meredith was no doubt right there uh, looking up, researching, and understanding, helping Mr. Armstrong to understand that we needed to have more than one festival site. And so from Big Sandy, we added Jekyll Island in uh, Georgia and uh, Squaw Valley in California. And then later on, the Lake of the Ozarks and Mount Pocono and uh, down in Corpus Christi. And we had sites all over the United States and Penticton up in Canada, and then we had sites over in England and other places in the world, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand. We had various sites that people went to. And no doubt God is going to do the same thing in the millennium. He's not going to try to have two billion people come to Jerusalem all at once. But there will be local sites that are, are set up for people to go to. But every nation will be sending ambassadors as it were they're going to be sending representatives up to keep the feast and so the leaders of the uh, the Egyptians and various other ones are going to come up to the feast in Jerusalem at that time otherwise their nation gets no rain and then they'll be able to go back and explain and set up the feast there and, and various things like that and our role as spirit beings uh, is either going to be very direct or working through some of these human beings. We don't know. There are a lot of questions we don't know the answers to. And I don't want to open up a lot of questions, but uh, clearly it's talking about these nations sending up representatives. And so they're physical individuals that have to make physical decisions about these things. But we also know that this time, this is our time when we are going to rule with Jesus Christ on this earth. And so we find that if they don't go up to keep the feast, then God is going to cut off the rain. So we need to think about that. That God is serious about these things. He wants us to keep the feast. He commands us to keep the feast. And he tells us how it is that we are to finance the feast. Because in this world, uh, people don't always save up for their holidays. They put it on credit cards and leave. Now, it's okay to use a credit card as long as you have the money to back it and everything. In terms of your tithe, you, you can use credit cards more convenient. but We ought to be saving up that tithe, that tenth, and coming to the Feast of Tabernacles with it and sharing with others. If we have an abundance, we're able to share with others. We're able to send some in in advance, a tithe of our tithe or an excess amount. If we know, you know, I I, I can't spend all this, we can send it in so that others can attend. And every year we have a number of people, widows and uh, handicapped people and brand new people who otherwise would not be able to attend the Feast except for the generosity of those who have been faithful in saving their tithe and faithful in keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. So we do this year by year. Let's go now to chapter 31 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. And I'll look at uh, verse 10. Uh, this is uh, something that I remember being read in those early years of keeping the Feast of sometimes leading up to it. But you know who I remember more than anybody else reading this passage is Dr. Meredith. And I'll, uh, I'll explain why here in just a moment. Um, Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him. This is talking about the time of Jacob's trouble, as we read there uh, in the previous chapter in verse 7. Time of Jacob's trouble. And Jacob, or Israel, our Israelite nations, are going to go into captivity. And God is going to bring us back, or the individuals, human individuals that go into captivity. He's going to bring them back from captivity. He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Eternal has redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Now notice, beginning in verse twelve, how similar this is to what we read back in Deuteronomy the fourteenth chapter about taking you know wine and oil and the first fruits of our, our our herds and flocks and our first firstborn of our herds and flocks and so forth. Uh, notice the similarity here. He says, therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. Now, when will this happen? Well, it's right after God brings Israel back from captivity. That means it's at the very beginning of the millennium. And he says they'll be streaming, or therefore they shall come and sing in the heights of Zion, verse 12, streaming to the goodness of the eternal, for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. Their soul shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. So they're going to be coming before God. They will no doubt be coming to the Feast of Tabernacles, where there will be these celebrations of, uh, you know, the young of the flock and the herd, and wheat and new wine and oil and the rich things that we enjoy so much. And so this is very similar to what we read there in Deuteronomy. Uh, because this is the same time that Deuteronomy is referring to in that sense, it says then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning to joy will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. So the sorrow that our peoples will have in captivity is going to be over, and they're going to come back to uh, certainly some to Israel. And I'm sure that that would include uh, the Israelite nations around this world, at least at some point in time. But maybe, depending on the population, uh, maybe all of them will go back to the little nation of Israel, but I, I think that that's going to be a bit of a stretch there. But they will be coming before God, and they will be rejoicing at that time, and there will be dancing. But notice the young men and the old together. The virgin shall rejoice in the dance. I I imagine this is going to be very different dancing than what we have today. You know, some of our dancing today uh, looks like people that, uh, I don't know, they they, they jump up and down. You know, they're just jumping up and down uh, like they're on pogo sticks or something. And somehow that's called dancing. But if you look at some of the Israeli dancing, some of the folk dancing of various countries around the world, there are a lot of different kinds of dance. It's not just any one kind that is the only right kind, but some of the dancing that we do in our world today it is not going to be the kind of dancing that is done in tomorrow's world. It's not going to be lewd as some dancing is. There's all kinds of, uh, well, there's a movie, Dirty Dancing. I never saw it, so I don't know exactly what kind of dancing it was, but there are some kinds of dancing that just play to, uh, the wrong, uh, emotions and attitudes and, hormonal attitudes of people, and stir up their emotions in a wrong way. But here we find that they're going to be dancing, old men and young together. uh, They're going to enjoy it. They're going to rejoice in it. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. Verse 14, I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance. Now this is where I remember Dr. Meredith reading, because Dr. Meredith never could gain much weight. I was like that too. I finally got older, and I don't know, sometime past the age of 50 or 55, I finally was able to gain a little bit of weight. But Dr. Meredith was always thin. He always wanted to be bigger. And as it says here, I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance. He thought, okay, well, finally, he'll be able to put on some weight. Now, he's saying it tongue-in-cheek and uh, kind of humorously, but I remember that so much because he would really focus on that verse that finally he could put on some weight. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Eternal. So the focus there, satisfied with God's goodness. We will rejoice. We will be thankful. We will be praising God in psalms and hymns and beautiful, beautiful songs. Uh, I remember at uh, Wisconsin Dells, Mr. Peter Oakes had uh, a music store. That's uh, the McNair's uh, father-in-law. Uh, father, uh, grandfather, I guess it is. And uh, so he had a lot of people that he introduced to music. And at Wisconsin Dells, the opening night service was so inspiring. I wish I knew that exact piece that they played, but it was saying something over and over again. But they had an orchestra, about 100 pieces, and a couple hundred people on stage. And they would play that even before the service began. But it, it set a, a tone, an atmosphere. And you really felt like praising God when you had that orchestra, when you had that choir singing out there, and six, seven, eight, nine thousand people in the audience all singing the same thing. What a what a joyous occasion that was. And so he says here that my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Eternal. Now, not only Israel, but the whole world is going to rejoice at the Feast of Tabernacles. As we saw from Zechariah the 14th chapter, we've been called of God, you and I. We've been called to be here on this special occasion. And I think those who come to this opening night service year after year look at this as this something special. There's an electricity in the air. You're seeing your friends that you haven't seen for a while. There's a buzz in the auditorium. And I really feel sorry for those who for whatever reason, fail to make this opening night service, because it is such a special time. It really sets the tone for the remainder of the feast. And we're privileged pioneers of the millennium. We are pioneering what they'll be doing in the millennium. We are learning how to celebrate as they will in the millennium with various attitudes and approaches, the way that the millennium will be conducted. So let's make sure that we... Rest properly so that we can receive the messages being offered up during this uh, eight-day period. And, And be sure to put God first, first in all things. Be sure to cooperate and promote an atmosphere of decency, orderliness, and work within the organization and live peaceably. We teach our students at our summer camps that all things should be done decently, in order, without confusion, and in peace. And that's what I saw in Squaw Valley in 1964. And that is what we are to to do here at all of our feast sites around the world. Do things decently, in order, without confusion, and in peace. If you do the first three three things, peace does follow. We want to promote a family atmosphere, just as I saw on my first feast. Have that family atmosphere, take people in. If you see somebody standing by himself or herself and nobody's around, go up and talk to that individual. Find out who that person is and maybe even invite that person to lunch with you or over to your condo unit or apartment or wherever you're staying to uh, enjoy some fellowship with other people. Now, that person may already have something going on, but you never know. And uh, we, we shouldn't be shy about these things. We should always be willing to take somebody else in and not just make it exclusive for my family, and that's what we're going to do, and we're going to forget about everybody else. What about those widows and widowers, those individuals who have lost mates of this last year or even last two or three years? Some of those people are very lonely. They may be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles for the very first time by themselves. They may have kept the feast for 40 years with a mate, but now they're all by themselves. And they need to be shown that encouragement. And the only way you can even know who those people are is if you introduce yourself to them. Practice the give way of life. Make sure that no one is left out. And put first things first. Take time for prayer. Sometimes we get so busy trying to cram everything we can into this eight-day period, try to spend all the money we can, eat all the food we can, that we don't take time for the spiritual aspect of the feast, which is really the reason why we're there. If we just want to have a good time and save up money, we could go to the Caribbean, we could go to Hawaii, we could go any place on the face of the earth we want to, I suppose, if we have enough money, and we could just have a big blast. But that's not why we're here. And yet God allows us to enjoy those beautiful places and to do you know, wonderful things, but always with the same thing in mind of why we are here. We are here to learn God's way, to practice God's way, when we have a little bit more to be able to do so. So put first things first. Take time for prayer. Focus on why we're here and talk about God, the Bible, His plan, etc., and His work. A focus on the Bible and the work of God. And let's begin by getting a good night's rest tonight so that you'll be alert during services tomorrow and maintain that all through the feast so that you, you will know that when you come to services, you'll be able to stay awake, not just because you had a cup of coffee, but because you got a good night's rest, at least everything within you that you can possibly do in order to do that. So good night for now, and we'll see all of you tomorrow during the uh, morning service.